podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. We hope you enjoy this sermon. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com. Well, again, I want to welcome each and every one of you to Redeemer Christian Church. It's an honor to have you and your families with us this evening as we get to remember and marvel at the mystery of Christ's birth. Uh, My name is David Ritchie. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Christian Church, and if you're a Redeemer family member, you're welcome here. If you are an extended family member who's coming from out of town, or if you're a a guest, a first-time guest that lives in the Amarillo area, we're, we're glad that you're all here for this special evening to be able to celebrate this moment. And a lot of times in moments like this, when you, when you have a different type of gathering on a, on a special day, there is this great temptation to try to do something brand new, to try to say something as a pastor that no one's ever thought before or considered before, but the truth is, today's not necessarily about that. My aim tonight is not to tell you something that is profoundly new, but rather something that is profoundly ancient and true. A truth that is so wonderful, a truth that is so grand that it has changed the very course of human history. And that truth, in theological terms, is known as the incarnation. This idea that the God who created the galaxies has been able to fold himself into a human embryo and enter into God's good creation. That that God, Jesus Christ, has entered into creation to live the righteous life we could have never lived in our own strength that he has died the death that we deserve for our sin and rebellion, and that he has risen again so that we might be a people who have true hope to face in our life, that we have hope that we can hold on to when we are suffering, that we have hope that is like light shining into darkness, because that's exactly what the gospel is. And so, I want to be able to uh, share with you a very familiar story, a very famous story. Maybe this is the thousandth time you've heard it. Maybe it's the first time you've heard it. But if you do have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. And we're going to look at the story of Christ's birth. This is Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all who went to be registered, each one to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased." 
When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is God's word, the story of the very first Christmas. And I'll I'd like to be able to just summarize some of the things that are going on in this text that might be easy to miss. It's notable that this story doesn't begin with Jesus. It begins with a man named Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is at this moment when Christ is born the most powerful man alive. He is the first Roman emperor, the the man who is ruling from the city of Rome over vast regions of the world. He is the image of power, conquest, Wealth. He is the personification of the kingdom of this world. The visible image of what it means to do anything to gain power, even if it means stepping on people and stepping on a few hurting people along the way. He wants to know how great he is, Caesar Augustus. And so he launches this registration. He wants to take the census to know just how powerful he is. But the God of heaven is sovereignly presiding over this moment. He's even directing the heart of Caesar in this moment because this isn't going to be a decree that will result in the glory of Caesar Augustus. Rather, this will be a decree that shows the glory of God. Because as a result of this census, a man named Joseph, who is from a town called Nazareth, travels south to his family hometown of Bethlehem. He comes with his wife, who is pregnant with a child. They make an 85-mile journey from Nazareth to Gal- from Galilee all the way to Judea to the city of Bethlehem outside of Jerusalem. And there in this moment, a child is born. It's in the context of an overcrowded city where they can't find a place to stay. They are given accommodations that are more fit for luggage and livestock. And it's at this exact moment of busyness and human self-worship that God enters into human history completely unnoticed as a little baby boy born to a poor couple in a forgotten corner of the world. And at this moment, there's this army of angels that announces outside of the city of Bethlehem to a a group of shepherds of all people that Christ has been born, that the Savior, the promised Messiah, the one who has been hoped for for generations and generations of God's people, that at last, at long last, he has come. As a result, the shepherds come and they visit this baby. And they leave awestruck, filled with wonder, proclaiming that the true king, a a king that's even greater than Caesar of Rome, has now come. Now, one of the amazing things about this text to me, as I've studied it for many years now, is that the angels of heaven are absolutely awestruck and amazed. Now, think about this. This is an interesting theological question to consider. Think about how hard it would be to surprise an angel. An angelic being that has been in the throne room of God for so many years, for so many generations. 
For an angel to be awestruck, for an angel to be surprised, really is something special. Why were the angels so amazed? They were amazed, they were filled with wonder because of this, that the holy, transcendent God who's existed uncreated from eternity past has loved us so much that he left his throne of infinite glory, that he folded himself into this little baby child and was born into this world as a servant. That he was born into a world filled with pain and suffering. That he would be born to die so that he might one day end all suffering and pain and death. That this is a truth so grand and so glorious that even the angels would be amazed. The great British preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon once had this to say about this moment. And now, wonder ye angels, the infinite has become an infant. He upon whose shoulders the universe doth hang, hangs now at his mother's breast. He who created all things and bears up the pillars of creation has now become so weak that he must be carried by a woman. And O wonder, ye that knew him in his riches, whilst ye admire his poverty. Where sleeps the newborn king? Had he the best room in Caesar's palace? Hath he a cradle of gold? been prepared for him and pills of down on which to rest his head? No. It's where the ox fed and the dilapidated stable and the manger. There the Savior lies, swathed in swaddling bands of the children of poverty. The only reasonable response to a truth that is this grand is awe and utter amazement. But this amazement wasn't the reaction of the majority of the world at this time. For them, it was just another day. It wasn't even Christmas Day yet. And even in the Bible Belt, I'm afraid as, as these truths become more and more common, it's easy to allow Christmas to be just a day that's a day off of work, a day that comes and goes without reflection. But I, I want to challenge us this evening to consider that this moment is the moment that God has arrived into human history. And to allow that notion to settle on our heart in such a way that it becomes utterly uncommon and totally remarkable to us yet again. That this would be a season this year that we are able to see the mystery of God's light shining into our darkness. And so a few things I want to be able to consider from this text is how God is glorified in this moment. And the first thing I want to show you is that God is glorified by his gospel. Look again at the text beginning in verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day, in the city of David, is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws, lying in a manger. And suddenly there is with him the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased." Now notice what the angel does not say. The angel does not say, I bring to you a message of good advice about how you can work hard to be a better person, about how you can modify your behavior and think the right thoughts so that you can become all that you want to be. Good advice might be helpful, but good news is an entirely different category, isn't it? Because you see, good news isn't about what you can do, it's about what God has done for you. It's about the saving action of God entering into human history, saving those who cannot save themselves. We can't do anything to earn this gospel. All we can do is receive it with humble hearts 
of faith. That we can receive it with joy, peace, and grace. And it's very significant, this gospel, that it's announced not to those who are living in Caesar's palace, not even to the upper crust and the aristocrats of Jewish society. It's first announced by this angelic host to lowly shepherds. Those that by their very profession were considered by the Old Testament law ceremonially unclean. Those that were an abomination to polite society. To be a shepherd was a shameful, even a dirty occupation. Yet, it is this group of shepherds who receive the gospel message first. It's as if God is saying, my gospel is for the humble. My gospel is for the dirty. My gospel is for your shame. My gospel is is not something that you can receive after trying really hard to clean yourself up. My gospel is what makes you clean. You could say that it's even a necessary precondition to understand and to receive this gospel to, is to know that we cannot save ourselves. That the, Jesus has come when we could never save ourselves. That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is our peace. And that because of this, Jesus receives all the glory. Second thing I want you to see is that God is glorified by his people. Let's look at who shows up at this birth event. Verse 15. But when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. This verse is saying something huge about what God intends to do with his people. It shows us something that is very contrary to our Americanized, individualized notion of private spirituality. Because you see, God does not come in a privatized spiritual experience. God comes, and when he comes, he brings together a community of people. I mean, look at this. We have a simple carpenter, an unwed mother, shepherds that are blue-collar workers, and, and soon this party is going to be crashed by a cadre of Middle Eastern wise men. This is a diverse group of people. You could say this is a group of people that has no business coming together outside of Jesus. They would never be together for any other reason, but this is exactly what Jesus does. He brings together a group of people that are able to cross political and racial and social boundaries and even geographic boundaries that would never be crossed otherwise. And this is what the gospel and the gospel alone can do. In fact, when you see the vision of what this gospel is going to accomplish, one day we are going to see a heaven that is filled with people from all nations that have come together. Nations that were once at war, that once hated one another, that are surrounded together in love around the throne of Jesus. This is Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What great news for a world that is so divided, that is so filled with hatred, with people group against people group, that the gospel is able to heal the hatred. And to be able to bring peace. Point number three. God is glorified through his mission. Look at what the shepherds do. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen as it had been told them. The shepherds do not walk away from their encounter with Jesus and remain the same. They glorify God. They praise God. 
as a result of their experience with Jesus, they go forth and they become heralds of what they have seen. In the same way, the gospel does require a response of us. That Jesus is not someone we can respond to with nominal adherence and lip service. That he is worthy of our worship, our allegiance, our submission. But even more than that, he is worthy of our proclamation. That we are called to be ambassadors of this good news and the good kingdom that has come through Jesus Christ. That as we go out into the world, that we are to live lives that represent that gospel. This is N.T. Wright, a very famous, well-known biblical scholar of the New Testament. He says, the point of following Jesus isn't simply so that we can be sure of going to a better place than this after we die. Our future beyond death is enormously important. But the nature of the Christian hope is such that it plays back into the present life. We are called here and now to be instruments of God's new creation. The world put to rights, which has already been launched in Jesus, and of which Jesus' followers are supposed to be not simply beneficiaries, but also agents. That we are called to be ministers of the reconciliation that Christ has accomplished. And before we conclude our time, I want to look at just one last thing. Something that's easy for us to miss, but something that's so crucial to this text, and that is the sign of the manger. The manger is so important to this text that it's actually mentioned three times in the passage that we read. The the angels have announced this astonishing claim. The Messiah, the long-awaited one, has now come. And the sign that the shepherds will know that this message is true, that this God has come into the world, is that he will be lying in a manger. Why is that so significant? Well, it's significant because this is the last place in the world that you would expect to find the rightful king of the universe. While Caesar is on his throne in Rome, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, the king of kings and lord of lords, is lying down in a feeding trough. That he is in the condition of utter humility. For the shepherds and for the readers of Luke's gospel, this would signify that God intends to save his people, yes, but he intends to do so in a very unexpected way, a way that would shock us and scandalize our minds. And that is a foretaste of who Jesus Christ is going to become and who he's going to be. That this baby born in a manger would one day die a humiliating death on a cross, that the light of the world for a brief moment would come into this world and be extinguished. But praise God that that's not the end of Jesus' story. That Jesus Christ would rise again, and through the power of his resurrection, that he would be able to give us hope that the powers of death, the powers of sin, that they are defeated. And one day, their effects will come to a complete end. The light of Jesus' kingdom is dawn, and we are called to be bearers of that light. Maybe you're in a place where you're a believer, and just in the midst of all the distraction and busyness of life, you need to remind your heart that this is what's most important, that this truth is the most eternal truth that we could ever grasp onto. Maybe you're in this place and you're not a believer, or you were at one time a believer, but you've walked pretty far away from God. I want you to consider the beauty of this gospel, that perhaps there is more to this world than just mere matter in motion, that maybe that there is a good God, a God who shines light into our darkness, a God 
who would care so much about our pain that he would enter into the suffering of this world, that there is a God who is able to bring life out of death, and that this God loves and transforms his enemy by his love. This is a truth so profound that it split history into two pieces. And I encourage you to believe it today because if you believe it, it'll change your life too. So this Christmas season, for all the people that are here, for all the people of God, let this be a time that we marvel at the truth of this God who has entered into our reality, who has entered into human life. Let us be amazed alongside the angels. Let us, like the unworthy shepherds, go forth to bear the light of Christ's birth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would allow this truth to settle upon our hearts in such a way that we would respond, that we would respond with worship, that we would respond with lives that reflect the God that is love, that we would respond as those that don't just believe that light has come into our darkness, but Lord, teach us how to be people that shine your light through our lives. So Lord, as we sing and as we marvel at these truths, Lord, I pray that um, we would be a transformed people that go forth to be emissaries of your good kingdom that is to come. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com.